Hello, my name is Rachel King, Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this 2020 Word Christchurch Spring Festival podcast, The Great Word Debate, proudly presented by Milford Asset Management. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the great debate from Word, which normally generates a spontaneous round of applause. <laughs> Lovely, lovely to see so many familiar faces out there and some strange ones. Some very strange ones, actually. But uh, lovely to see you. Tonight would not be possible, ladies and gentlemen, without Milford Asset Management. Oh, look at that. They love it. If you have assets in need of managing, ladies and gentlemen, go to Milford. They're sound. Oh, spent all day working that one up. In honour of Milford Asset Management, who pumped so much money into this Milford Asset Management debate, I've decided just for this evening to change my own name to Milford Asset Management, ladies and gentlemen. And debaters, if you wish to address me at any stage in the debate, there's no reason why you should. It is either Mr. Ass Management, or if you're feeling brave, Milford. All right? Or MILF. <laughs> you are going to be alarmingly quick tonight, aren't you? Um, thank God the audience didn't know what that meant. And, um, oh, they did. <laughs> well done, sir. Um, the, uh, every debater will get a, a brief introduction from me beforehand, but their names, just in case you haven't noticed, starting from the affirmative team is Tom Scott, Hannah O'Regan and uh, Toby Manhire, and on the negative team, Paula Morris, Guy Williams and Susie Wiles. <laughs> You are a generous and loving audience, I can see that already. Each speaker will get eight minutes. We will begin on the negative side, go turn and turn about. Each speaker will have roughly eight minutes. We're not going to be too strict. Um, and then there will be a brief summary from the negative leader, a brief summary from the affirmative leader, and then you, ladies and gentlemen, will decide this debate. You will adjudicate. All right, so pay attention. Um, the moot, ladies and gentlemen, the moot, the motion which they will grasp to their bosoms and hug, ladies and gentlemen, is entirely apposite. It is that it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, certainly if it goes wrong on Tuesday in the United States of America, well, <laughs> but I suspect I'm stealing someone else's jokes there. So, Without more ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a veteran of the word debate, ladies and gentlemen. He has so many accolades, and if he wore all his medals, he would fall over, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's one of, one of New Zealand's leading entertainers, writers, cartoonists for generations. He's got a new book out on, on uh, Charles Upham. Um, he's... Uh, uh, Attended the last debate, as you know, he was brilliant. He's going to bring the same jokes. He's confident you'll have forgotten them. Um, he brings, as usual, the winning smile and the losing face. Um, please welcome my old friend and hero, Tom Scotts! Thanks, Joe. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, just for the people in the audience who are worried, there's someone with a dart gun in the back of the hall, and they will, will hit Joe if he gets out of control. 
Um, someone said to me, are you going to do your Sam Hunt impersonation again? But only if people really want to hear it. <laughs> I'll tell you a true story then. This is not a joke. This is a true story. I was going through a bad time. My relationship had failed. And I said to Sam at a party in Wellington, Sam, when women come up to you and start flirting with you, how do you know that they're really keen on you? Or they're just sort of groupies and, you know, and, um, you know, following you because you're a famous person. He said, Tom, Tom, I give them the benefit of the doubt and fuck them anyway. <laughs> so that's the rule I'm operating on later on this evening. Yeah. <laughs> and if Joe plays his cards right, he'll be on the list here. Did I do my Julian Cleary impersonation last time? <laughs> Julian Cleary was very funny. I saw him in Wellington. He came on stage and said, Hello, Wellington. I was in Christchurch last night. What a shithole. <laughs> and you knew he was going on to Auckland. Hello, Auckland. I was in Wellington last night. What a shithole. <laughs> I was in Featherston last week. What a shithole. That's true. <laughs> now... It's great to be back in this wonderful city again. I was here three weeks ago, speaking at the Canterbury Club. But I must say, you guys, are, you're a tough city. We came in today from the airport and there was poor old Jerry Brownlee's head on a spike on the main side. <laughs> they didn't put the whole body because the spike would have bent. <laughs> I spoke at the Canterbury Club, which is not to be confused with the Christchurch Club. Remember, they're quite different. Who's a member of the Canterbury Club here? Anyone? So you won't mind if I offend the club, will you? <laughs> and the Christchurch Club, they were both. One was founded by Graziers. I think that was the Christchurch Club. Or might have been the Canterbury Club. The other one was by businessmen. The difference is if you go into one of them, you can see sheep shit on their boots, and you go to the other one, you can smell bullshit on their breath. But we flew in, we got to our hotel, and there was John Campbell and Wissy Ehemira waiting to greet us on the pavement. And John Campbell brushed out and we, Tom Scott, you lovely man, you lovely man. About 10 times in, the, in about 15 seconds. John, is, John Campbell is a wonderful friend of writers and books in New Zealand. He is basically the male answer to Kim Hill, though with slightly less testosterone. He would be the first to agree with that. <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. As most of you will know, though looking around the hall, maybe you don't, <laughs> this is the opening line of a song of the same name by the American rock group REM, Rapid Eye Movement, which is what eyes do in, in this dreaming state, written by the lead singer Michael Stipe. It has the same ring chapel march and beat of a Bob Dylan subterranean homesick blues and the same bleak despair of Dylan's other masterpiece, Desolation Row. Anyone know the words of Desolation Row? I'll just read out a few. This is why Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize for Literature. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlour is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand is tied to the tightrope walker. The other is in his pants. And the riot squad, they're restless. They need some place to go. This, this lady and I look out tonight on Desolation Row. 
The whole song is absolutely fantastic, full of these bleak, despairing images. Brilliant song. REM's song is just as grim, but lacks Dylan's poetry. But the main thing is at the end of the, the chorus, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, Michael Stipe adds, and I feel fine. I feel fine. So he's describing all these horrible scenes, and he says, and I feel fine. It's okay. But Michael Stipe, is, he's affirming already that that motion is, is a positive thing. It's the end of the world as we know it. We don't have to fear it. Now, where did I go to now? And, you know, <laughs> this was brilliant when I wrote it this afternoon. <laughs> I had to stop everything again. I had to pat myself on the back. The end of the world, the end of the world. The world as we know it has two billion years left before the sun swells up and engulfs Mercury, then Venus, and then us. We're going to be swallowed up by an expanding sun and the Earth will be reduced to a charcoal ember, possibly fly out of, out of its orbit. Anyway, it's a ghastly end. And uh, T.S. Eliot said, the world will end not with a bang but with a whimper. He got that slightly wrong. It will end with a hissing of steam as the oceans are all boiled off by the sun. So the world is going to end, but that's the big macro world. Our own little private worlds end as well. As, as uh, Margaret Atwood said, the world as we know it ends for somebody every day. The world as we know it ended for 500 school kids in the Canterbury region going to school for the first time this week. <laughs> and the world as we know it ended for their parents who were so relieved that this has happened. <laughs> and Barack Obama said, the end of the world is the end of the world. And we don't, we don't really have to worry about it too much. Christchurch is familiar with the end of the world. Christchurch has twice experienced in the last 18 months two events that ended the world as they knew it. The earthquakes, which were shattering and shocking. Your world ended as you knew it in one tremor of the ground underneath your feet. And then about, I'm not quite sure how long it wasn't that far after that, when there was the terrible mosque killings. The world ended as you knew it in one horrible, ghastly afternoon. The world can end very quickly for all of us. My team is, I'm very lucky to be supported by two brilliant people. I have their own words for this. Hannah and Toby, they're, they're stunningly clever young people. I hate young people. I hate stunningly clever young people even more. <laughs> I can tell you this, in fact, Hannah O'Regan's grandfather operated on my eyes. Yeah. He was Roland O'Regan, Dr. Roland O'Regan. He was the eye surgeon at Wellington Hospital. When I was five or four, I fell into an empty swimming pool in Ohaki Air Force Base. The pool was empty, and I was leaning over the side, looking down, and because of my head being too bloody big and heavy, I toppled over, and I landed head first in the empty swimming pool, went home with my sister Sue, and blood pouring out of my head, and this, this bright eye spinning madly in its socket, Mum rushed me off to an optometrist and they said, you need an operation. So I was driven to Wellington in the Chev 4x4 with my father. And Roland O'Regan changed the world as I knew it with one operation. So my, my personal world was changed by one operation. I had some fascinating stuff here. <laughs> I hope you all brought a book.
opening. Hello, Christchurch. I've done the Kim Hill bit, haven't I? <laughs> If it's the landlord, I'm going to get the money next week. I'll save this for my, I'll save this for my summing up. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> It's lovely watching senility kick in at two yearly intervals, isn't it? Oh, a couple of years ago, he was completely with it. Um, thank you, Tom. It was a joy. Um, <laughs> I like that line, um, the end of the world's the end of the world. No point in worrying about it. I think, yeah. yeah. Um, OK, uh, to open the argument. <laughs> well, actually, to open the argument for the debate, really. Um, <laughs> To open the argument for the negative team, I would like you to welcome the sadly crippled leading writer from Auckland who not only teaches creative writing, but as every teacher of creative writing does, should, does it. She does lots of it. She's written heaps of books and won heaps of awards. She stands up a bit early because she doesn't like to be praised. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, with a hugely sympathetic round of applause, Paula Morris. Christchurch. I am indeed Paula Morris, and I stand before you a broken woman, <laughs> literally. But like Lazarus, I have risen from my bed office in Auckland to be wheeled onto a plane and transported across the sea and hauled up some steps in order to be on this stage tonight <laughs> with Tom Scott, who I love, even though I have no idea what he was saying. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, as my team is, it is not the end of the world. And if it was, do you think I would have spent this much money on makeup? <laughs> because this just doesn't happen. <laughs> now, we've heard sort of from the doom and chaos merchants over there, and they are so sad face emoji and gloomy that they totally killed our buzz in the green room. In fact, and this is a true story, before we came up here on stage tonight, Every single person on my team had dark hair. <laughs> this is what the other team has done to us. Please don't let it happen to you. Now, Paula, I hear you saying, though you really shouldn't be talking. Paula, doesn't the other team have a point which we'll eventually get to hear? Hasn't it been the worst of years, as I assume they would be saying in the introductory comments? Well, yes, I understand. <laughs> guessing. Like you, I spent much of the year in lockdown. In Auckland, we even had an extra lockdown just to make us feel special. <laughs> Since the beginning of August, I've been in a cast or a moon boot in pain and enduring 12-hour stretches of Zoom meetings while wearing little else than a tank top, because they can only see this part, right? This year, I'm supposed to be traveling to the US, to Canada, to Finland, to Germany, to France, to China, all canceled. 
So you might expect me to be up here whining, it's the end of the world as we know it. But no. As Tom said, possibly in the manner of Sam Hunt, I've got no idea. And in fact, he didn't say this, but I'll say it for him because he should have. We're in the midst of a global pandemic and a climate crisis. Populist, extreme, right-wing politicians are having their way in too many countries. Kim Kardashian is holding birthday parties on exclusive private islands attended by a hologram of her dead father. <laughs> I didn't make this up. It was arranged by her husband, well-known intellectual Kanye West. <laughs> and the threat of terrorism, both existential and real, is present in most of our lives, as we don't have to tell you here in Christchurch. However, as our team will argue, history up to this point has not been some benign meadow in which our ancestors frolicked, wearing the animal skin version of tank tops. This world has always known climate change, pandemic, war, hurricanes, tsunamis, floods, fires, typhoons, inquisitions, eruptions, slavery, famine. Why is now so much worse? Is it because it's happening to us? Is it because we just want to sit around with our iPads and our avocado on toast, watching Korean dramedies on Netflix, and not thinking about anything that interferes with our pleasure? And of course, I'm describing myself there, by the way. May I recommend Korean television? Now, it is quite popular at the moment to announce things will never be the same again, and obviously, Although I may look very youthful, like a teenager. <laughs> rude. I actually wrote into my script, I wrote pause and then rude, because I knew you would laugh, rude. <laughs> I am, in fact, old enough to remember when my family first got a color television, a microwave, a VCR. It was the day we robbed a Harvey Norman. <laughs> it's always good to know a joke. It appeals to more people than just my husband. That's good. <laughs> I also remember those pre-computer days. Do you remember those? When we hand-wrote our essays at university because our bags were not large enough to carry around our electric typewriters. <laughs> now, with each new invention, did I think, oh, this is the end of the world as we know it? Or did I, as humans through history have done, just roll with it, seeing that change is part of a continuum, an evolutionary process, I've never assumed I could see into the future and know what's going to happen. I do know one thing that never changes, and that is human nature. Whatever happens, we'll still have love, hatred, jealousy, indolence, ambition, Tom's impressions of, of Sam Hunt, which I really love, the Julian Clary ones I'm still iffy about. Ambition, rage, cunning, despair, joy, we'll still have character and personality. We'll still have our flaws and our strengths. The world as we know it is a world of human beings, laughing and shouting, crying and plotting. That will never change. Now, before I call them a ambulance, uh, let me briefly review Team Doom for you. Tom was very kind and said nothing about us, but I've got some stuff to say about them. Uh, there, the end is uh, diving into the abyss, is Toby Manheim. Do not be distracted by his moody, Poldarkian demeanor. <laughs> you already are, aren't you? <laughs> Don't be distracted. on too long, Paula. Shush. Sorry, we've got a thing going on. His swaggering, spin-off attitude. He's a silly person. 
And next to him on the dark side is the otherwise apparently sensible Hannah O'Regan. And Hannah, don't worry, we'll rescue you later. (laughs) It's a secret signal we agreed on. And then there's the team captain, bringing up the rear, despite being the team captain, Tom Scott. Now, we know that Tom would much rather be off now searching for Charles Upham, but apparently he has already found him and now has some time on his hands. Is that why he feels that the end of the world is upon us? Has Tom Scott written every possible book and there's nothing left for him to do than quote grim song lyrics, apparently? Now, our team. Here we have glamour. We have wit, we have common sense, we have actual knowledge, we have Guy as well. (laughs) (laughs) Guy Williams, I've just met him for the first time. He's so tall, he's like a business that's too big to fail. (laughs) Now Guy, in our argument, will take an unusual position. I was going to say that wasn't meant as a saucy joke, so don't snigger, but you're all like, okay. (laughs) Guy has been tirelessly researching the city of Christchurch, be warned, and assembled a comprehensive portfolio of evidence that may seem on the surface to be quite nonsensical. But by the time he's finished saying whatever it is he plans to say, I have no idea. I'm sure you'll all agree his argument is compelling with a clear beginning and end and some kind of word-filled middle. (laughs) Then there is my colleague, Dr. Susie Wiles, We both teach at the very best university in the North Island. What did you think I was going to say? I'm nearly finished. Give me a break. Susie, who is world famous, not just in New Zealand, will expound on billions of years of our planet's history, about previous extinction events. And because she's a real scientist, unlike anyone on the other side, she actually knows, as she told me, when both the world and the universe are likely to end. Spoiler, it's no time soon. So together we will argue persuasively, emphatically, and for very little money that it is not the end of the world as we know it. As Churchill said, and Tom Scott's probably writing a book about him as we speak, it is not even the beginning of the end. Tonight, let us persuade you and that good sense and good hair triumph. Got it. Well, it seems we do have a debate after all, right? <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Splendid. It's underway. Um, our second speaker for the affirmative. She was champing, champing at the bit in the green room to get out here and speak. She wanted to speak before you came in, ladies and gentlemen. She is so keen. I won't hold her up. She is the CEO of Core Education, ladies and gentlemen. She is passionate about Te Reo Maori. She is a wonderful communicator and a great fan of enhancing communities. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hannah O'Regan! Kia ora, kia ora Joe, kia ora o tautahi, tēnā koutou! Kia ora! Um, and I'm hoping that the claps will, be, will resound for the fact that these imports from other places, you know, I'm one of your own, okay? So, kotato. Hey! Now, I'd just like, you know, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the, um, the opposition. And, and look, I'd just like to mihi to you. Mihi to you from, from Auraki, the tallest mountain in the land. Mihi to you um, humbly. 
uh, on the, a basis that you didn't get the choice of which side you wanted to be on. So I know, and a fangirl over here to Susie as well, I'll just make that point, that I watched every morning that I could, waiting for the, the pink locks to, to grace my morning and tell me about what I should be aware of the pandemic and what I, what I should be doing as, as a person in this country. And Susie, thank you. Thank you for telling me that we cannot carry on as if the world has not changed. <laughs> I listened to you. I hung off every word. As you told us, we cannot continue to behave the way that we would like to behave. Instead, what we needed to do was we needed to take stock of our reality. We needed to change to what the new environment told us. And Ehoama, my friends, the world as we know it has changed. So thank you, Susie. <laughs> now, Paula, my sympathies. You've already self been self-declared as a broken woman. Your argument um, is a testimony to that. Um, and I, you know, whilst we're aware that constantly, uh, yes, of course, the world has continued to change. And over time, of course, we have seen this change. But I would like to present to you two, two arguments for tonight. The first one, the first argument, so if you'd like to write it down so that you could comment on it later, feel most welcome. Um, <laughs> The first one is the fact that, yes, the world has, as we know it, has changed. And not that it hasn't been changing over the millennia of time, as Paula would like to you know, have you think, but the fact that actually we've reached a point that the human impact on the world has changed to such an extent that if we fail to recognize what we are doing in this space and time, then we will not necessarily see the world just go through its usual state of change, but we will have brought on a change that is unprecedented, to use one of Susie's words, that is something that we then will bequeath our children and our grandchildren that are you going to be proud of to sit here today and support a team that says the world as we know it has not changed? Will you? Will you? Or totally? I don't think so, because as a city, we know what it's like to experience that change. We know what it's like to have the world under our feet be shaken to the point that we have to reset. We have to reset and acknowledge that the world as we knew it is no longer, and we have to reclaim a future that has hope. The second point the second argument is that to fail to actually acknowledge the world that has changed, to actually acknowledge the calamity that has befallen us that we have also impacted upon with climate change, but not just climate change, the impact of the human race on this environment, on our ecosystems, on our biodiversity, to fail to do that means that we do not have hope. And I am somebody of immense hope because I am a Cantabrian. <laughs> Something that these guys might not understand. So, I would say, yes, we have used the words of REM. And for those of you of a different generation, I'm not judging Tony and the rest of you, those of you of a different generation that don't know REM, well, he was not alone. Perhaps you would resonate with the words of Karen Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, Karen Carpenter? Okay, or Snoop Dogg. Okay, well done. 
So there are many, many songs that have been written about the end of the world. But I would like to ask you to think of not necessarily the songs, but let's look at some people who have been somewhat more present in terms of the scientific debate, in terms of the intellectual debate, in terms of the heart debate. Would you contest David Attenborough, a man with an accent like he has, would you? (laughs) Have you listened to his witness statement to the world? Have you? Anyway, hands up, please. This is audience participation. Thank you. For those that haven't, clap for the other team. (laughs) David Attenborough recently has come out and told us and has implored us to take note of the changes that have happened that have been happening in terms of the rate of change at a faster rate than ever before in human history because of the impact that we have had. And he has asked us to look at the world and what we do in a new way to acknowledge that the world has changed. The world as we know it has changed. And if we fail to do something about it, then that responsibility lies with us. The biodiversity of the world has now reached a tipping point that if we fail to do something about it, we will no longer have a world that is able to house humanity as we know it. David Attenborough people who could possibly argue with David Attenborough. (laughs) Or Greta Thunberg. Let's raise our hands and clap for Greta. In fact, I will tell you the kind of people that will argue against the minds, the intellect, the scientists, the conservationists of the world, the people that tell us these stories, the kinds of people that argue against them fit into a couple of boxes. Those that support the president of Brazil. (laughs) Who support the burning of the lungs of the world and those that support Trump. Really, they fit into two boxes. If you fail to agree that the world as we know it has ended and that we need to do something about it, what you are doing is tacitly, your tacit consent has gone to the make America something again as if it was once before. So I ask you to consider not only the, the beautiful commentary, and, I, and Paula has a way with words. You have to agree. She's got a way with words. She might be broken. <laughs> she might not be from Christchurch. <laughs> but she's got a way with words. But really, her, the, the, what she was thirsting for was this idea that the world is just changing and it will carry on as if it will carry on and we will be resilient, and and the next world will be no different from the world we have today. Well, I am here to tell you it is, and I listen to David, and I listen to Greta, and I'm telling you as a person of Canterbury, as a person of this land, that my whakapapa will absolutely support me, and you cannot deny my whakapapa. (laughs) If you want to, there's a green room at the back that we can have a conversation with after, but... My whakapapa will tell you 
that the most important thing that we can do today is to agree that we, what we have done as a community, what we have done as a society, what we have done, what we have done as humanity, has to has been to irrevocably change the world that we know in a way that is not sustainable, that needs to change in terms of our behavior, our practice, our thinking, our heart, and we now need to reset. And if you haven't picked gone to a magazine shop because they are hard to come by nowadays, the time, people, the time is now. It's called the Great Reset. And in here, the latest edition of Time, it's talking about the colleagues of... Joe, shut up. (laughs) This is important. This is about the world as we know it. (laughs) The latest edition of Time talks about the need for us to reset. And that is what we, as a positive, strongly supporting Cantabrian team, are doing, is we are asking you to, yes, acknowledge that the world as we know it, has changed. But that hope has not gone from our horizon. In fact, what we need to do is seed hope onto our horizon, but we can't do it pretending that things don't need to change. We need to put our stake in the ground and say, yes, we can claim a future where we can be at one with the world and our environment. We can change our practice, our behavior. We can reset as long as we don't pretend that the issue doesn't exist. So join with me. We've rebuilt once. We've rebuilt twice. People who aren't from Christchurch don't know what a roadblock is. (laughs) We can do it, Canterbury. We have done it before, and we will do it again, and we will do it along with our communities in our country to say, yes, the world as we know it has changed, but by gosh, we can change the world that we are going into by acknowledging it and committing to it with all the values, the fervor, the love, the commitment that I know we have. Join with me, Canterbury. Kia ora tato katoa. Ta-da! I told you they'd love it, Hannah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you find yourself getting distressed by the information that you're receiving from the podium today (laughs) and find yourself fretting about your assets. (laughs) All they need is a little readjustment, a little management, and I know just the people. Milford Asset Management, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) They'll... If you think the world is changing, don't you worry about that. We'll stay rich. All right, um... Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest brought down by Milford Asset Management from the North Island, an enormous expense considering the size of him, is a renowned televisual Kiwi comedian about whom, about whom, ladies and gentlemen, nothing less than the TV Guide said very funny. (laughs) Please welcome Guy Williams! Thanks, Joe. Thanks, guys. I, uh, I'm probably one of the lesser-known uh, speakers here tonight, so allow me to introduce myself. My name is Guy Williams. Some of you might have seen me on TV. Some of you might not have seen me on TV. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that I've been on TV. <laughs> I was the first New Zealander ever to appear on Pihar Rescue, both as a host and a victim. <laughs> 
And there's a lot more people here tonight at this show than there were at the last gig that I did in the staff room at Burger King. <laughs> um, so uh, welcome to the other team. They've uh, done such a good job that um, two of the audience members just walked out <laughs> after their second speaker. <laughs> Uh, I, I tried to take some notes to try and rebut them. Um, for Tom Scott, I wrote, Sam Hunt impression, uh, casual sexism. <laughs> Joking about well, beloved Kiwi icon Kim Hill being manly. She's one of the greatest Kiwis we've got. That's poor form. And then he just read some um, weird quotes from the internet that no one really understood what was going on. And then he finished. And to just prove to you how weak his arguments were, ladies and gentlemen. I looked at my colleague Susie's notes. She wrote Tom at the top of the page. Her entire page was blank. <laughs> I swear to you, she didn't write one note down. Um, had, had it a little bit better. She took a few notes for that. We'll note that um, Hannah only argued that the world had changed. And of course, the moot is, it's the end of the world as we know it. Of course, the world will change. We're arguing about the end of the world right now, which is so important. She also wrote down, she... She advertised Time magazine for quite a long period of time. <laughs> and she just desperately pandered to the people of Christchurch. <laughs> In the same way that Donald Trump peddles nationalism. <laughs> it was sad to watch. And little did she know, ladies and gentlemen, little did she know that I am also a Cantabrian. Ooh. I lived here for the first three years of my life. <laughs> I was born in Christchurch Women's Hospital, September 19th, 1987, Women's Suffrage Day. I was born and women have been suffraging ever since. Also, when I was a kid, I thought Todd Blackett was my dad. And when the Crusader, when I went to a Crusaders game, I used to cry when the horses went around. I, I wish I was making that up. So I flew into Christchurch today. It was 30 degrees at Christchurch Airport. The sun was out, 30 degrees at Christchurch in, uh, what month is it? October, and I was like, we're going to lose, right? Because we're in trouble, because that seems like climate change to me. I don't know, I was freaking out. <laughs> but then as I, as I got here to Christchurch, and, and it felt so normal to me, and then I felt more optimistic, because you see, you know, how, no matter what the world throws at us, we are very resilient. No place in the world is more resilient than Christchurch. If you look around the world, like we have, since the beginning of time, we've always stressed, we've always said, the world is ending, it's over. Mass media and newspapers and now the internet have only accelerated this fear-mongering that perpetuates in our society. From pandemics to world wars to nuclear crises to earthquakes to tsunamis, we've always said this is the end of the world and we keep on getting through because humans are resilient and Cantabrians are resilient. And we're going to talk about change. Coming to Christchurch really proved to me how little things change. <laughs> and now, obviously, you guys have had some big physical changes, but man, oh, man. All right, I stopped reading the Christchurch Press when I moved um, to the North Island in about 2005. And when I was reading the Christchurch Press in 2005, every day in the paper, there was this dude. His name was Martin Van Bayen. <laughs> and he was obsessed with David Bain. Every day, he wrote about David Bain. Every single day. It, was, um, it blew my mind. I got back today. I opened Christchurch Press today. <laughs> Not only was he writing about David Bain, 
He's making a TV show about it. <laughs> Not only does that show how little things have changed, but it'll show you how little good ideas we have for TV shows in New Zealand. <laughs> Argued most strongly by the fact that I've been on multiple ones. <laughs> that was a weird brag, eh? <laughs> like, I think I'm cool. And I mean, Martin, if you're here, please get over it, mate. It doesn't matter whether you think he did do it or he didn't do it. The important thing is that he's learned his lesson and he's not going to do it again. <laughs> Too far? I don't know. It's just amazing to see how little, how, 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 how small the changes have been. When I was last in Christchurch five years ago visiting family, all right, pandering again, <laughs> Uh, we were talking about uh, the Christchurch rebuild and arguing about that and the, um, the cathedral rebuild and arguing about that. Here I am five years later and we're still arguing about the cathedral rebuild. <laughs> and I love the cathedral. It's a proud part of my childhood and I was strongly in favour of rebuilding it because I assumed it was like 2,000 years old or something. <laughs> I found out recently it's something like 140 years old. I went to, internet, I went to um, Europe last year. They have... Uh, Internet cafes that are older than that. <laughs> Why don't we save some money and try something new? I'm just, that's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't want to wade into that debate too much. And then you know, five years ago I was here and you guys were arguing about the name of your bloody rugby team. And here I am five years later and we're still going on about the name of the bloody rugby team. And it just seemed, it was a bad idea back then. A lot of things have happened. Change has happened. And it's still a, it's a shocking name for a rugby team. But even before then, let's look at the history. What are the Crusades, right? What are the Crusades? They were uh, like a religious war through the Middle East, massacring Muslims. That's all we, and last time I checked, um, not, many of the, um, not many of the Crusades happened in the South Island, as far as I can tell. I'm not a historian, right? It's just a weird name. It's weird to call a rugby team after the Crusades. It seems horrible. You wouldn't have a, a, a rugby team called the Nelson 911s, would you? <laughs> you wouldn't pull out a soccer team called the Hamilton Holocausts. Pull your shit together, Canterbury. Change the name of your goddamn rugby team, for God's sake. <laughs> We've got to speak about change. Nowhere do you see less change than Christchurch. Christchurch, a place where rugby is somehow still a sport. A place where um, we're, we're still bragging about how good our water is while we um, spray it on our gardens. We've got the best water in the world. Then why are we pissing it away like that? I don't know. Um, Simon Barnett is still a celebrity here somehow. <laughs> Joe Bennett is still an intellectual somehow. <laughs> Christchurch, I've got to tell you this right now. Joe Mel Bennett. Milford to you. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Milf, or whatever he's calling himself, is not, a, is not an intellectual. He's just a guy who's read a couple of books. If you guys read a book, you'd probably be able to get on his level as well. I honestly think that nowhere changes less than Christchurch. Christchurch will be, be here tomorrow. doesn't matter what adversity you throw at this town, it keeps on powering through. People are resilient. People are going to be here for hundreds of years to come. If there is an end of the world, we are miles away from it. We are doing pretty well, all things considered. We could probably seal some of our squabbles, but we're going pretty well. We're so resilient that I know, even in a thousand years' time, when someone is hiking through the post-apocalyptic jungle or desert or whatever it is, looking for some other people who have survived the nuclear holocaust, 
they'll run into someone from Christchurch and think, oh shit. <laughs> and they'll strike up a conversation and the person from Christchurch will go, hey, I'm Tom, what school did you go to? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Guy. What you don't know, by an extraordinary coincidence, is that you weren't the first choice of speaker. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Rachel, and this is serious, when Rachel and I were putting these teams together, frankly, you weren't on our early selection list. <laughs> and, um, Objection! <laughs> I mean, facts are facts. I mean, you're a scientist, young lady, despite the hair. Um, Unfair advantage to the opposition. <laughs> um, but well, who was on the list was David Bain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've actually met him in my, in my connections with the press, and Martin Van Bainen, a very fine journalist who never repeats himself. <laughs> and I said to Rachel that I'd, I'd ring him up and, and see if he'd do it, because he doesn't do a lot of... And I just thought, what a coup, you know, we could fill this hall. And, and I rang him, he's a lovely fellow. And, um, and I remember, I said, uh, David, Joe Bennett here, um, you know, here's the deal. And he said, no, mate, I'm sorry, uh, I can't. I'm, I'm writing a book. I said, really, what's it called? He said, Joe Karam did it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker is embarrassingly young, <laughs> handsome, talented, and foolish. With all those gifts, he's walked into the, the worst possible profession to do at this time, journalism. And he's done it with his head held high because it matters. He's edited everything. I've got a list of the stuff that he, he edits the spin-off. He's edited the spin-off collection. He's edited the Arab Spring, which took some doing. And he even edited the New World Order. He edited the Guardian comment, comment pages. He edits anything that moves. He's an extraordinary young man. Please welcome Toby Manhire! Kia ora koutou, is that working? I'm, I'm going I'm to have to edit the speech because I was going to, I was going to uh, follow Hannah's lead and praise Christchurch, but I see that as not a winning formula. <laughs> Guy Williams just stood up here and called you Nazis and you cheered him. <laughs> also, by the way, he said resilient over and over again, and maybe I've got a small sample, so I want to find out. Every person from Christchurch that I meet hates being called resilient. <laughs> Can I have a show of hands? Resilient good? No. Resilient bad. Don't call them resilient. It might have been okay when you were three, <laughs> when you last completed the stand-up material you just recycled here this evening. But not today, my friend. What, what, do, we call, what do we call them? Strong, courageous. <laughs> Proud. Milford. Milford. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's daunting coming to Christchurch and taking part in a debate because, as we know, this is the Xanadu of debating in New Zealand. <laughs> it's witnessed some of the greatest rhetoric in New Zealand history in debating. <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> Fuck. That went really well for John Key. Maybe you don't watch. 
political debates. I'll try another one that's a little bit more contemporary for the youngsters. Don't disrespect Samoa. <laughs> Anyone? All right. Look, it's a real, real, real privilege to be here tonight on uh, the final night of the, the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good night for it that uh, Rachel King, the director of this festival, chose. It's Halloween, of course. Uh, Tom has come this evening as Michael Stipe. Uh, he, he sort of had to be introduced to the young, up-and-coming hipster group, REM, I think, <laughs> before this evening. But we got there. Um, it's a full moon tonight. Uh, and Christchurch Airport is teeming with infected Russian semen. <laughs> so it's a good night, a good night to go out on, I think. I'd, I'd like to pay tribute to everyone on, on stage tonight. Uh, we've had an impressive lineup tonight. We had um, Sam Hunt. <laughs> we had Julian Clary. We had David Attenborough. And we had Greta Thunberg. <laughs> the four horsemen of the apocalypse, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> What you, what you don't know now, but you will tomorrow morning when you wake groggy, is that uh, our team captain, our talisman, Tom Scott, put you all under a deep trance <laughs> in his opening speech. <laughs> and we all sung together beautifully, it's the end of the world as you know it. And you were good. <laughs> Especially you. You were great. Uh, Paula Morris fell into the trap of thinking that he hadn't said very much, but in fact he did that and a lot more. She attacked arguments he hadn't made. <laughs> <laughs> and O'Regan made you laugh and cry and then laugh and then cry and then cry and then cry, but more. <laughs> and when you were looking the other way, probably a kind of hangover from the trance, she performed emergency eye surgery on Tom Scott. <laughs> Which shows you uh, the power of genetics. Um, uh, Paula Morris. Again. Excellent, I thought. Um, very interesting. I thought she noted that both she and Susie Wiles teach at the University of Auckland, which will come as news to their students. <laughs> <laughs> which will come as news to their students. Guy Williams, hmm. he remembered his own birthday, which is good, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and he, he, he had a go at Martin Van Banyan for making a television show about David Bain, which is fine. Guy Williams has made several television shows about Guy Williams. <laughs> <laughs> and continues to suck on the teat of the state. <laughs> <laughs> in that pursuit. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> so we need to think about what uh, my friends here have said to us all night. What they've said to us is it is not the end of the world. And you, you listen to those words and they're familiar, aren't they? 
You've heard them before. You've heard them from an indifferent grown-up when you stub your toe. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) From the grumpy ex-boyfriend who made you miss a flight. It's not the end of the world. From, hang on. From, From the surly IT guy when you call to say your computer just shut itself. Oh, it's not the end of the world. These, ladies and gentlemen, are the shruggers, the sires. These are the people that moral philosopher Jerry Brownlee (laughs) once called the carpers and the moaners. They're the pedants, they're the literalists. These are the people that can't go to bed at night without having corrected at least one person for wrongly using the word less when they should have said fewer. (laughs) And what we say to them is we say enough. We say, when we stub our toe, it is the end of the fucking world. It is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Art. There would be no art without the immediacy of the end of the world, would there, when you think about it? Uh, Haruki Murakami, uh, who's up there with Jerry Brownlee in terms of his contribution to the canon, said, everyone deep in their hearts is waiting for the end of the world to come. And that's true especially of artists, isn't it? For, for, For writers, sculptors, painters, for poets, for composers, it's the beckoning. It's the taunting, the aching of the end of the world that gets them up in the morning or the afternoon. (laughs) Or sometimes that's what keeps them in bed all day because it's a lot to process. (laughs) The end of the world is the great unspoken muse. Without it, a wonderful festival such as this could not exist. And it's disappointing to me that these people do not want this festival to exist. (laughs) So that's art. Let's talk about science next, uh, one, of the subor- <laughs> one of the subordinate disciplines of art. <laughs> We're blessed to have with us uh, this evening Susie Wiles, a great New Zealander, a friend of mine, and we owe her a great debt for the work she did in communicating to New Zealanders the COVID response, um, as Hannah touched on it. And that, that, that response was all about confronting head-on, about going hard and early the severity of the pandemic. And I say to you this, just imagine in those days, those critical days, if Guy Williams (laughs) had been on the ninth floor of the Beehive with the most senior politicians, the most experienced public servants, the big brains gathered together, what are we going to do? He'd say, not the end of the world. (laughs) You see my TV show? And that's not a surprise. What's disappointing to me is that Susie supports this position. (laughs) The end of the world, the not the end of the world (laughs) crew over here would have left us in a perpetual crisis. They would have meant that gatherings couldn't happen, that a wonderful festival such as this could not exist, and it's disappointing that these people do not want this festival to exist. (laughs) Right. Guy, no. Uh, (laughs) An even greater challenge awaits us, doesn't it? Uh, The environment. Guy Williams. (laughs) Eh, It's not the end of the world. 
We all know the doomsday clock, you know, the thing that they invented um, after the Second World War to mark how close we were to a nuclear catastrophe, and they expanded that a bit. So it covers all the uh, potential catastrophes that could befall us. And that now sits at 100 seconds to midnight, which is, to quote, the most dangerous situation that humanity has ever faced. Eh, not the end of the world. <laughs> it is the end of the world. And that is not pessimistic or nihilistic. It is empowering. Let's do something about it. Let's go hard. Let's go early. These people, these people just want to do sort of, you know, deck chair discourse on the Titanic, don't they? <laughs> oh, there's the economy also. Let's do that. <coughs> I've got several hours on the economy. <laughs> the, the country, when you think about it, depends quite heavily on the end of the world. A uh, few issues with tourism lately. Um, so we need to really lean into that whole, you know, bolt hole for the, for the what do they call them, the preppers. Peter Thiel, great New Zealander, if he said tonight, <laughs> hello, Peter. <laughs> Love the country so much, he just spent 12 days here and then became a citizen. Uh, those are the people we need, right? We need them building bunkers for the apocalypse in Queenstown, and that depends. That strategy depends on it being the end of the world. I've got an idea. We call it 100% Rapture New Zealand. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, so that's the economic case. We've made the scientific case. <laughs> We've made the aesthetic case. We've made the Guy Williams case. We've made the rapid eye movement surgery case. And ladies and gentlemen, we have not disrespected Samoa. Not tonight. So join me, please, in standing up to those ex-boyfriends, those disappointing grown-ups when you stub your toe. And we say no, ladies and gentlemen. It is not, not the end of the world. It is the end of the world as we know it, and we're ready. Our final speaker of the evening, and then we'll have a brief summary from the leaders, and then it is your job to adjudicate to vote, ladies and gentlemen. Um, our final speaker of the evening, before she rode the virus of hell onto the altar of prominence, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is a microbiologist by profession. Um, she, and I don't know if this is deliberate in my notes, she heads up the bioluminescent superbugs lab. Well, only person in history to have been infected by her area of research. Please welcome to the stage, Susie Wiles! Kia ora. So, um, gosh, I guess I'll start by saying if anybody has any authority to be able to say whether or not it's the end of the world... I feel like my expertise would probably make me, of all of the speakers here, the one that could, you know, who you should believe the most. But we're not going to argue from authority. I'm going to give you some evidence. But I want to start just by touching on some of the arguments. I was trying to write notes. We had no argument. We had change the topic argument, <laughs> which was, you know, change, the world has changed rather than ended. And then we had the 
we're waiting for the end of the world as a muse argument. Again, not quite the argument. So um, anyway, so here's my argument why it's not the end of the world. So um, our home is four and a half billion years old, and it's been through a lot. As ourselves, our history on this planet is almost as old as that. We started out as single-celled organisms that began to flourish about two billion years ago when the Earth underwent its possibly largest extinction event that you've never heard of, the GOE, which is the Great Oxidation Event. So before this event, our atmosphere was almost devoid of oxygen. But then some rather pesky little microbes evolved to photosynthesize, and they started pumping oxygen into the atmosphere as a waste product, and that oxygen was converted into water and carbon dioxide by some other resident methane-producing microbes in a process that required nickel. Stay with me. <laughs> as the Earth's crust cooled and the supply of volcanic nickel dwindled, those oxygen producers started to outperform the methane producers and the concentration of oxygen rose until it became highly toxic to life on Earth. And that toxic atmosphere evolved li allowed life to evolve in ways that led to us. We got ways to repair DNA damage that led ultimately to the multicellular organisms that breathe oxygen and have sex to reproduce rather than simply splitting in half. That's us, by the way. <laughs> so... We can track our ancestors back billions of years, and admittedly, they didn't look much like us. <laughs> but if you want to get more specific, it, they looked like us about seven million years ago. If you want to get more specific than that, our species, Homo sapiens, have been around for about 300,000 years. And as you heard earlier, they've weathered all manner of change. We've had ice ages. We've had pandemics. I could tell you all about the pandemics if you want, but maybe I'll tell you. <laughs> um, so our history is one of rolling with the punches, of being courageous and strong and adapting to new opportunities. And by that, I don't mean quitting Earth and heading to Mars with billionaire, billionaire technophiles. I mean staying on Earth here and adapting and doing what we have done for billions of years. So, as a scientist, I am going to tell you what the end of the world will look like. And Tom Scott did start with our argument. It was weird. He gave you a glimpse of this. So I felt like he was arguing outside. Anyway, so what will it look like? So there are lots of different options. Um, sort of a bit of a pick and mix adventure, I think. Um, so our solar system could be hit by a wandering star, although that's thought to be unlikely, mainly because the universe is expanding, so things are actually getting further away from each other. More likely is that Earth is going to collide with Mercury, Venus, or Mars. Um, if you're interested, computer simulations suggest there's about a one in a hundred chance of that happening sometime in the next five billion years. More likely is that we'll be hit by an asteroid or a comet. Um, if it's more than five to ten kilometers in diameter, that could produce a cloud of dust that blankets the planet, blocking direct sunlight from reaching Earth's surface. That will lower land temperatures by about 15 degrees within a week. So get your coats on. Um, and that will stop plants from being able to photosynthesize for several months. These events happen about every 100 million years, so we're probably good for about 30 million years before we need to start to worry about that. Alternatively, we could be hit by a burst of gamma radiation from an exploding star somewhere in our Milky Way. They happen about every 40 years. 
Um, but they need to be within 100 light years of us, so um, maybe not going to be so bad. In fact, scientists predict there's about 20 of those are going to happen over the next 2 billion years. So I think we've still got a bit of time. But if they do, if we do get this burst of uh, gamma radiation, they interact with nitrogens in our atmosphere, producing nitrous oxides that deplete the ozone layer, knocking out the phytoplankton that form the base of our ocean's food supply. So that will, or food chain, that'll be quite bad. Um, anyway, so probably more realistic, uh, well, actually, the thing that is actually happening, we, we know this is happening, um, is that our sun, the giant thermonuclear reactor that it is, is running out of fuel. Uh, in fact, so it's fueled hydrogen, if you didn't know that, um, and already half of it has been used. Um, and as the amount of hydrogen decreases, the sun also gets hotter. And that means it gets brighter. And as it gets brighter and hotter, it raises the temperature here on Earth. So as those temperatures rise, the chemical processes on Earth here speed up. So we reckon in about 600 million years, uh, basically the levels of CO2 are going to drop to the level that photosynthesis in plants is going to be difficult. It's also known that about a 10% increase in this brightness will raise the average temperature to 47 degrees, and that will start this evaporation of the oceans that you uh, heard about, leaving it uh, mostly a desert, looking something like Venus, but that's probably about a billion years ago. So unlike our opponents, you know, the world is not over, it's not ended, but I've given you plenty of actual evidence of how this uh, could happen, and all of it suggests that we've got quite a lot of time left. But I want to leave you with one last thought. There is something else that could happen quite spectacularly called vacuum decay. So somewhere in the universe, a quantum event could spontaneously happen at any time. That quantum event will create a bubble of a different kind of space that expands at the speed of light and destroys everything in its path. Then the bubble collapses into a black hole. There would be no warning and we wouldn't even have time to debate whether or not it was the end of the world, as we know it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh! Very well said. <laughs> and there are mornings when we've all hoped that would happen, have there not been? No? <laughs> and those are the mornings you need Milford Asset Manager. <laughs> <laughs> To summarise for the negative team, the sadly crippled Paula Morris. Paula Morris, two minutes. Thank you. Two minutes two to minutes. sum up. From One team, minute. we read the moot. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Williams dazzled us not with nonsense, but with sense, with his own profound Cantabrian roots. He reminded us that Christchurch endures whatever it goes through, including Guy talking about it. <laughs> Susie Wiles blinded us with science. She reminded us of the power of adaptability. Adaptability. See, I, I don't teach at the university. You're quite right, David. I just take their money. And she said... She said stuff, I wrote it down, about comets and hydrogen and vacuum decay. It sounded very persuasive to me, although unlike Joe Bennett, I'm not an intellectual. <laughs> now, some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice, wrote the poet Robert Frost, though he never saw Game of Thrones. <laughs> As Tom mentioned earlier, and T.S. Eliot told us in my bursary English exam, that the world would end with a bang and not with a whimper. Well, we've heard a lot of whimpering from this team tonight, haven't we? 
They really didn't seem to grasp the moot. I said to Guy, they've done less preparation than you. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah thought the moot was about changing rather than ending. Interesting. Toby, posing as a millennial. Um, <laughs> I think he thought we were in an Olivia Newton-John movie, Xanadu. There's a, it's a lot about sucking on teats. I found it distasteful. <laughs> Tom seemed to think the moot was about the Canterbury Club, the lyrics of Bob Dylan, and possibly other things allegedly said while we were all in a trance. <laughs> so remember tonight, everyone, a vote for us is a vote for common sense, for science, for vision. Raising your hand for the other side, it's like casting a special vote tonight for that person who has been much maligned, a certain Mr. Brownlee. Um, <laughs> if you were to cast a special vote in Ireland tonight, wouldn't it be at this point... Kind of a waste of time. <laughs> so let me conclude with the words of another poet, Maya Angelou, writing about the human spirit. I would say the resilience of the human spirit, but apparently the spin-off has banned it. Um, this is about how we will never, ever admit defeat, just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Kia ora. Kia ora. And to conclude the debate with a little geriatric wonder <laughs> through, a one, through the remnants of a once impressive intellect. <laughs> Please welcome young Tom! Have you met my ex-friend here? <laughs> it's been a, an interesting evening. These people don't fall to their glib wit and charm and their appeals to reason. <laughs> They brought logic and research to the table, which is dishonest in a debate. <laughs> Paula, I told you, Paula's wearing a moon boot. I said to her last year, take that trapeze out of the bedroom. <laughs> but she wouldn't, yeah. The reason why you have to forgive Guy, he's so tall that up here he's getting less oxygen. <laughs> so he suffers from hypoxia. And you, your argument, Sue, you seem to be saying that because we're going to be hit by a meteorite long before the sun expands and engulfs us, we should cheer up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about the expanding sun. We'll be gone long before then by a meteor or a comet. The world, as we know it, is coming to an end. There are many, many reasons for this. Nuclear weapons is one, one great risk. There's the changing viruses. I mean, God knows what will happen when COVID-19 becomes COVID-20 <laughs> or COVID-21. Farmers in the South Island introduced Khaleesi virus and they were bloody lucky. They, it came from a wet market in, in the coastal China as well and they smuggled it into New Zealand and it could have changed and become a, a deadly human virus as well. So we, we, we're playing dice all the time with the environment. I once, I'm going to bag now, I once flew to the, the, the South Pole on an American C-130 Hurt. This is the dog tags, the American 
Defence Force gave me. There were two little tags. In the event of an accident or a death, they put this small one around my big, this one, big one around my neck and the small one around my toe. So when they pulled open the medical cabinet, they could read the table when I told The ice at the South Pole is 10,000 feet deep. The weight of the ice is so heavy, it has dimpled the South Pole like an orange. The South Pole has been dimpled by an orange. That 10,000 feet of ice, frozen ice, the same size as continental Europe, when that melts, and it will, will melt, well, the Christchurch Cathedral will be in the centre of, of a lake in the middle of Christchurch. <laughs> you have a lovely cathedral on the lake. They should, say, they should save the cathedral, and there are various cities in Germany where they rebuilt cathedrals that were reduced to rubble during the war, and um, the, the locals are delighted they have a, have a cathedral rebuilt again. So it's worth trying to do everything we can to preserve our antiquity. End of the world as we know it, it is coming, it's deadly. Albert Einstein was once asked, what will be the, do you know what weapons will be used in, in World War III? And the great professor said, no, I have no idea what weapons will be used in World War III, but I know what will be used in World War IV. And they said, what? And he said, sticks and stones. <laughs> so there were many, many nightmares facing the earth, environmental, biological catastrophes just lurking around the corner. And as you say, the end of the world is coming anyway due to um, just basic nature of physics. And, but we, what, the good news is that when the universe finally expands into cold nothingness, According to Penrose and other physicists, there'll be another, there'll be a collapse and another big bang. We're just, our universe is just one of many. There'll be a, so we'll be able to debate this subject over and over again for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian. the idea of devoting this motion for eternity and throughout that time Milford Asset Management will be there. <laughs> um, it's been splendid. Uh, both teams, thank you very much. Um, it's now over to the Cognoscenti, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's up to you to decide who you think has won the debate on whatever criteria you choose within the privacy of your mind. Great. <laughs> And you will convey your view about the winners by whatever method you uh, wish, so long as it's audible. Throw money. You may throw audible <laughs> money, ladies and gentlemen, which we will catch and put into an asset fund <laughs> managed on your behalf by the good people at Milford. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe, if you believe, ladies and gentlemen, that the negative team won the debate, or if you simply would like to make some noise, make some noise! <laughs> Thank you! I have that measured. And if you believe that the two people on the affirmative team are their grandfather... <laughs> And their grandfather, who's had eye surgery, on whom you must have pity. If you believe those two people and their ancestor, against all the odds, won the debate, make some noise!
It is traditional in these debates to declare a draw. <laughs> I am not a traditionalist, ladies and gentlemen. The winners of the debate are Milford Essex Medicine! <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you and good night. That was great fun, guys. Well done. Well done, everybody.